today on episode number 139 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Stephanie Lancaster shares ways to effectively debrief with our students. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stehoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today, I welcome to the show Stephanie Lancaster. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Occupational Therapy at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee. Before that, she was an occupational therapist providing clinical services for over 25 years. She holds a specialty certification as an assistive technology provider through the Rehabilitation Engineering and Assistive Technology Society of North America, and as a certified aging in place specialist through the National Association of Home Builders. Stephanie is currently pursuing an EDD in instructional and curriculum leadership with a concentration in instructional design technology through the University of Memphis. Stephanie is also a self-described podcast, TED Talk, and nonfiction junkie, and a lifelong learner with a strong commitment to providing growth in students, other faculty members, clinicians, and other stakeholders through establishing connection and continued learning, through sharing of narrative accounts, active reflection, and authentic exchanges. Stephanie, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited that you're here because not only are you a guest with an important topic for us today of debriefing, but you've been listening to the show for a while now. I have, and I tell you the truth, I almost always listen to each episode multiple times. That's how much I get out of the guests and, and the discussion and dialogue that happen on each episode. It's so fun to talk to someone who's been listening to as many episodes as you have and as long as you have, because it's, I feel like we've been having a conversation, plus we've been emailing and you're just a great resource. Yes. Yeah. And I was telling you, we have not had too many people from healthcare, that discipline before on the show. And I'm just so pleased to have you here as far as that goes too. I did obviously just read your bio, but I'm kind of curious, what do we not find out about you in your bio that we should know about you before we start diving into today's topic? Well, I would say the one thing is maybe my reason for moving from clinical practice as an occupational therapist to academics, which Mm -hmm. I did about three and a half years ago now. And the story behind that, I think maybe some people just decide to change jobs or see a job opening or something, but mine was a little more dramatic and a lot more personal. Six years ago, my my father had a catastrophic diagnosis. Um, he was diagnosed with brain cancer mm-hmm. and was um, very active and, and very healthy up until that struck. And overnight, 
really lost a lot of abilities and my mom needed a lot of help with him and he went through some different treatments that unfortunately they were not successful and he passed away 10 weeks later. And during that time as a healthcare provider, I wanted to be there with him and, and with my parents. They lived about three hours away from me, but I took some time off work and was there in their house and in the hospital with them a lot. And for a three-week period of those 10 weeks from the diagnosis till the time he died, he was in a rehab facility where there were people in my same profession working there. And what happened that was both personally and professionally profoundly changing for me is that I saw some not very good quality of care. Mm. And there were things that happened that could have been done a lot differently, a lot better, and it could have helped him and my family more in, in our specific case. And I think it was just, you know, his diagnosis was pretty rare. And the fact that he was terminal was something that really kind of blew the rehab professionals' minds. They really are used to dealing with people with you know, joint replacements and strokes and, and heart conditions and things like that that people get at least somewhat, if not fully, better from in their recovery. But um, as a result of that, I started thinking about moving into a teaching career so that I could have an impact, hopefully, on future healthcare providers and specifically occupational therapists. And so it took me a couple of years, but I worked my way into that position um, and happened to have one come open in my hometown of Memphis. And since then, I have earned a master's degree, and now I'm working on my doctorate in instructional design and technology. And I'm so thrilled that it's worked out and really love my job even more than I thought I ever could because I really kind of already loved it as it was, but it's just gotten better. Hmm. So did you did, have a good outcome. Oh, yeah. I always love stories like that where it's just there's nothing good about your story of what happened to your dad. I mean, that's just a heartbreaking, right. painful story, but it is such a beautiful thing in life when good can come from bad. Yes, I think so for sure. And, and I have to, you know, it is of comfort to me in, in my family when, when I tell them, you know, I think these students really get it or that they t come back and tell me heartwarming stories after they graduate about how they really are connecting with their patients and they realize their job doesn't end at the end of a therapy session that, you know, they have resources and referrals to do in addition to just the direct treatment and intervention and know that that really is their job too. And it's, it's our job to connect and to provide what our patients and their families need within our community. And I, I hope I'm getting that message across to 100% of the students I teach. Do you share that story ever with your students? Are they aware of that? I do. Yeah, the way I've come to present it to them, because one of the te classes I teach is an, on occupational therapy with people with neurological conditions. And I actually have sort of a story written out in blog format and I have them read it, but it doesn't identify that it's mine until the end of it. And so they read it thinking it's, you know, almost kind of seems like, you know, it's a fictional story. And then they get to the end of it and see they know me pretty well. And, and many of them make comments that they had no idea that it was my story until they get to it. And then mm -hmm. we study the, the, you know, disease process and how could that intervention in cases of that or similar catastrophic illnesses be done differently.
Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, so many themes that have come out. And I know you know this already, Stephanie, because you listen so much, but just the vulnerability that is required yeah. to be a good teacher. And I just celebrate that you're able to do that because I'm sure people don't always know how to handle other people's pain. And sometimes I'm sure you've probably had people say or do insensitive things around this. I mean, I, you couldn't, you already mentioned that. I mean, just in terms of your father's care while he was in his last yes. weeks of his life. I mean, it's just tough, but that you could have the courage and the confidence knowing what a difference it makes when we do allow ourselves to be vulnerable like that with our students. And and one other thing about your story and the way that you have chosen to make some good from such a painful experience is that your stories about your father and the painful things that you went through are clearly related to the classes that you're teaching. You're not asking your students to be your therapist or that type of thing, but just demonstrating, you know, that's really your vision and your mission for your teaching. Yes, it is very um, clarifying when you come into a big, big life change like that. And the learning process about grief was very heavy for me. And I try to pass that on. And, you know, I know you've done some episodes that address that topic. And I really take those to heart and, and think that that's a role of, of any educator is to be there, you know, for our students to talk to and lean on or, or just to be with in times of need. Yeah, I totally did. One episode that comes to mind was with my friend Carrie Moore. And in her case, she really was like my therapist. That <laughs> <laughs> and then I found out from the teaching in higher ed Slack channel that I wasn't the only person interested in some of these topics. So instead of, you know, us just going to lunch, we could actually record our conversation and share it with other people. Yeah, it's just so it's tough. But it's so nice when you realize there are, you know, whole communities of people out there who have been through similar things and can just, you know, we can just lift each other up when we need to. Yes, yes. Well, tell me a little bit, how did you first get interested in the topic of debriefing and its importance? Well, it really happened um, not long after I had moved over to academia. Um, you know, I'd heard a lot about reflection and that kind of thing. In fact, I remember probably 10 years ago, um, a, a friend of mine that I was working with finished grad school, and she told me that her advisor, when she realized she was going to actually graduate, her advisor asked her to identify in a nutshell what she'd learned from that two- or three-year program, and she said the thing that came to mind was the importance of reading the foreword in a book, and at the time, I thought that was a little bit nutty. I thought, you know, <laughs> how'd that be so important? But I tell you, since then, I have learned that myself, and I, you know, really kind of ate my words on that. But so when I finished my master's, I used that same reflection prompt for myself. What was the, in a nutshell, what had I learned in those two and a half years? And I realized that for me, it was the power of reflection mm -hmm. in learn, teaching and learning. And so that kind of got me started thinking about what we can do as educators, what I can do in this setting as a healthcare educator to enhance the reflection, and that led me to the topic of debriefing. I started reading and trying to learn more about it, and one thing I came across that I thought was a little bit funny is the Webster's Dictionary definition is debriefing is questions asked by someone, typically a soldier or a spy, about a completed mission or undertaking. And I thought that was funny because obviously, you know, that isn't our context, but yeah. um, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit in line. Um, from there, I've come to learn about it more. Um, 
as a process of strategically examining and analyzing what happened after the completion of an event or an activity in the context of learning. Mm. And so that's a little better than the soldier spy thing. But well, it, it kind of really depends on so your taste, though. <laughs> that's true. That's, that is true. I, I'm kind of intrigued by this connection. I would never have predicted that at all because <laughs> it's a context <laughs> I don't have anything to do with. But yeah, that's so fascinating. It, it sometimes can feel like going into war. I think when you go into a debriefing session, if, if there's some, you know, hostility or a lot of emotions floating around in the room. And the, the way I first really started doing debriefing, um, and, and here in healthcare ed, we have a lot of what we call clinical simulation encounters. And those can range from very low-tech things like let's act out between ourselves. Like I'm going to pretend like I'm a patient and the students have to interview me like they would a a real patient or, you know, practice transferring me from the wheelchair to the hospital bed. And, you know, they do that all on each other and instructors first. And then the next step from that is we actually hire patient actors to come in and we have some simulation rooms here on campus that are set up like hospital rooms and and little apartments that have some accessibility things built in and and we actually have them run through scenarios with those actors and um, so we found out about that and uh, one of my coworkers and I and we decided to put our students through that process with the the actor for the first time and we we knew that there should be some kind of reflection or debriefing piece but not knowing any better we just had after they had an encounter with the the pretend patient we had them write a two or three paragraph reflection you know about what they'd learned what they had taken away from it you know that kind of general reflection and you know that was good we did learned some things that we didn't know and and I think it helped them sort of process what had happened but it was you know the paper wasn't due for a day or two after the event and then it took us a couple days to grade it and get the feedback and as happens a lot when I give feedback in in a digital format or even writing it on the paper and handing it to each student I'm not real sure they read it Mm-hmm. I think they look at the grade and they're like, okay, I'm happy with my 98 or my 95 or, you know, or I'm going to argue this 92 or whatever it was. I don't, you know, know that they really read it or thought about it a lot. And they, that was kind of the end of that. So yeah. I, I felt like there's still something lacking. So that moved me into even more research and lots of reading. And I, and I have to, I know you've had a nurse educator on the show before and I have to, give a shout out to the profession of nursing because they are leagues ahead of other healthcare professions Mm. in the simulation and debriefing research. And most of what I've learned about debriefing has come from the literature from nursing. Oh, interesting. And yes, it, it really is. Some from medicine, but most, most from nursing. And so one thing in my research that I have come across is a, a technique really an updated method that's called the 3D model of debriefing. And it comes from an article that's called the 3D model of debriefing, diffusing, discovering, and deepening that was published in 2011. And it really talks about those, those three stages of debriefing, but they're actually, it's actually bookended by two other stages. One that's called the pre-briefing stage. 
And so in that one, and that actually happens after the activity or the encounter, or it could even be after a, a test or an exam or a presentation or a project that students have done. And so the, in the pre-briefing, which can just take a, a few minutes, the instructor tells the students what to expect and what is expected expected of them in the briefing and then puts them at ease about how, if any scoring is going to be done, if any participation points are going to be given, or if they have to say something or if they can be more listeners, lurkers on the side. So that's what happens in the pre-briefing, but then they move into the diffusing, and that is to promote meaningful discussion and really kind of uncover key points. And in the article, it talks about it almost as doing a needs analysis, which I think is, is an interesting way to look at it. So you go into it doing an investigation by asking students how they felt before the activity, how they felt during it, and how they feel now, how they saw their own performance, you know, what they thought they could have done better or differently, and um, really try to help them relate to others as co-experiencers is the term used by those authors. And so it, it kind of puts people at ease. So if somebody says, I mean, I was so nervous, I didn't sleep the night before, you know, I had to stay up all night proofreading this, this paper, or working on my PowerPoint. Um, and then other people will start chiming in and say, me too, I thought I was going to you know, look like a zombie in the presentation because I didn't sleep or, you know, my computer crashed and I had to start over and then somebody will say, oh, I hate it when that happens. And it really kind of creates a mentality of we're in this together. Mm -hmm. You're not alone, even though you might have felt like you were. Yeah, yeah. So the, the next big stage is discovering. And that's when the instructor really tries to facilitate reflective observation and and the easiest way I found to do that is to identify something that happened or maybe that I thought was going to happen and it didn't happen in the activity and then ask them why they did that or didn't do that or was there something else they had considered doing and why did they make the choice and I'll give an example of that um, in a recent clinical simulation we did we had a an actor that was playing the part of a patient who'd had a knee replacement and he was sitting in a chair beside a pretend hospital bed and each student had to go in and ask some questions. And one of the things they also had to do was to get the patient to write something on a piece of paper. And so we, the other, another instructor and I are watching on like a CCTV in another room and we saw several students who just handed the pretend patient the paper and then a pencil, but they didn't have anything to write on. <laughs> there was a rolling table right next to them that mm. we thought they would push over and adjust and then use, and they didn't. And we just, yeah. we were just really shocked. And so in the debrief, which we really now strive to conduct immediately after, like even if we do the, the activity in the morning and we'll have them come back that afternoon or the next morning, you know, as soon as we can get them back in the classroom together, we do the debriefing. And so we, we asked them, why, why did you, did you think there was any other option besides just handing them that? And they said, well, you know, we saw the rolling table and we considered moving it over, but you all talk about physical barriers and how those represent, you know, the us versus them or the, mm. the power 
struggle between I'm the, the professional, you're the patient. And we did, we didn't want to have that happen with this man. So we did, we intentionally oh. didn't move the rolling tray and that made perfect sense. Oh yeah. And then you can see how your teaching needs to be slightly modified to accommodate for things like that. Yeah, and you never would have discovered exactly. that if you so hadn't gone through the discovery it phase. A, <laughs> it was a light bulb moment there for yeah. sure. And so we, we got a quite a nice dialogue going between the students about, well, what, which was better or, you know, would you, are there some reasons you would do it? If you had known the patient better, would you have done it? Or should you at least have set, given him a choice or, you know, what else could have been done? And so it was very rich and quite a learning experience for us as well. The next thing on this model of 3D is the deepening phase. And that really is to help students figure out what they have learned or what they has changed about them or the way they do things that they can take moving forward. So in, in a clinical situation, it would be what can they learn from this that they can use in the clinic or in a hospital, but in a test, say in a business class that, you know, it could be what did you take away that you're going to remember in an interview if we just had a mock interview or what's your big takeaway and then how does that connect? to what you're going to be doing in the real world. Mm -hmm. And that's really the goal of that. And then the very last kind of bookend of that is the wrap up. And it's the, the authors recommend that the instructor ends with an opportunity for the learners, each learner to summarize what has happened in the debriefing. And when I read it, it really reminds me of um, Stephen Brookfield's work in his 2006 skillful teacher. And I know, You've had him on the show too. And he says, what assumptions have you held? Did you hold before the experience that were clarified or confirmed? Did you become aware of any assumptions that you didn't know you had? Or what new perspectives did you discover? And it's very similar to that thought process that, that you try to pull out some introspection and reflection from each student that relates to the debriefing section rather than the the actual encounter or activity. And so that's the 3D model. It's, it's pretty simple, but it's much more structured than I think we tend to do in, in just a general debrief. One of the themes that I hear you saying, Stephanie, through all of this that really resonated with me is that this process, of course, is benefiting the students and a sense of metacognition, thinking about our learning, but also I hear so much benefits for our own metacognition as teachers and how much we can learn from yes. this process. Yes, for sure. It's, you know, I've, I've heard it said that that what really needs to happen in a good debriefing session is both instructive and constructive. And I think that's for the, the teacher, the educator, as well as the learners. Mm. Or we're all learners in that sense. I also know that this is not all as easy as it sounds. So would you share with us some of the challenges that we might encounter as we started to put our own practice of these 3D modeling of debriefing together and some of the tips you have to avoid them or, or to at least lessen yes. them? I would say probably the biggest challenge that I have come across is that at least my students tend to want to talk just to me, to have a dialogue with just the person in the front of the room. And 
even in a session like this when it's mostly me asking questions or saying what questions did you have and how could your person next to you think about that where I'll tend to say, you know, how did everybody feel going into the, into the activity and they want to talk straight to me. And so I try to make it really clear to them in the pre-brief that really what I want them to do is to talk to each other. Peer-to-peer engagement is really my goal there. I want to be more of a data collector or an observer when I'm doing kind of that needs assessment and, you know, with occasional prompts or, questions or comments there, but I, I, my goal really is for them to talk amongst themselves because I think kind of the first, it's kind of like a think, pair, share format with that, but it's hard for them to do that. They're mm-hmm. just so used to answering a question directly to the instructor yeah. that it's hard for them to break that. Um, the other thing, and, and this is a long embedded habit too, is they're very worried about their grades. And they you know, want to know, you know, and most of the time on, on simulations or activities like this, when it's, there's a heavy debriefing component, it's honestly, I put it in as a pass or fail or, you know, complete or incomplete. Mm-hmm. And the only way you would be incomplete is if you didn't come or you really did not participate or you were hindering the, your group or the people around you. So that ne- really never happens it's pretty much a freebie and I try to tell them that, but they are very, still very focused on the grade or is this going to be on the test (laughs) kind of thing. Yeah. So that addressing that emotion, not just I'm nervous about doing this activity or presentation or, you know, being filmed with the patient actor. It's the emotion about grades. It sounds like the way that you've structured it has really lessened that by having it as a pass fail and a low stakes type of a, assignment type type of thing that that's probably helped it a lot. Yeah. And I, one other thing that I've sort of stumbled upon that helps that is to really consider and try to have some control over the environment, uh, sort of setting the scene for the debriefing. Um, I found that the importance of that setting is, is a big one. And if it's a traditional classroom where I'm at the front and they're all in rows facing me, they, they don't dialogue with each other or even think or reflect as much. They, they watch me. And that's really not what I want them to do in this case. Um, mm-hmm. So if I can, I will try to make this happen in a room with, you know, tables instead of desks or at least move things around where people are in a circle or in, you know, groups not just all facing the same direction where I'm standing. And if I can't manipulate it, I'll move to the side of the room or the back of the room or, you know, something like that as best I can to try to shake things up a little bit. Well, this is a wonderful process and I'm so glad that you introduced it to us. We have not, as you know, discussed debriefing as a formal process before on the show, but of course we've talked about related topics like debriefing and also leading discussions. And you mentioned Stephen Brookfield. He's been on the show twice yeah. now. Yeah, I'll link to the show notes for people who would like additional follow up on related topics. He was on episode 15 talking about discussion as a way of teaching. And he also has a book on that too, that I'll put on in the show notes. And then you mentioned the skillful teacher, which it sounds like you had read the 2006. I did not read it until his 2000. It's either 16 or 15 version. I'll go and I'll look it up. But oh, what okay. a what a wonderful book. And I understand that between the 2006 
and the 2015, 16, whatever it was, he included chapters in there about race and gender and just some other aspects of oh. our teaching. It's really good. It's, I mean, it's, I'm sure it was great in 2006. He's a wonderful writer. Yes, I have several of his books, but I don't know that I have the updated one, and I will definitely have to put that on my list. Yeah, I think it's great. So I'll link to those episodes where he was on talking about the skillful teacher and discussion and then also to his books if anybody wants to check them out. And this is actually a time when you and I each get to share our recommendations for the show. And I was cracking up because I sometimes I I don't get to make the recommendations or figure out what I'm going to do until, you know, five minutes before I call the person and other times I'll think of something. So I'll put it in in advance. And I had put this in in advance and it just happens to fit with your profession. So I have two health related apps that I have been enjoying. And one of them is a habit building app called Productive, the Productive app. And it's just a visual way and giving the little nudges through reminders and notifications to remind you to do what you've said is important to you. I only have one habit set up in it right now, and that is just stretching. I'm trying to be better about stretching on a daily basis. And it is just one of those that was easy to set up. It's easy to see how I'm doing, and it doesn't pester me too much. There are other apps that do a better job if you want lots of pestering, but very customizable. I just think it's a delightful app. And one of the things that really works well for me in life is to become more aware of things. And one of the ways I can become more aware is just to see visually how you're doing on this on this particular habit. And related to that is I do have an Apple Watch, like I've mentioned previously on shows, and their, their built-in tools from Apple are yeah, they're okay. You can see reports of how you've done in the last month, et cetera, but, but it doesn't do as great of a job as the other app I'm going to recommend called Activity Plus Plus. It's the Activity Plus Plus app, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it just takes it to a whole nother level. It's still, it, it talks to your Apple Watch, so you don't have to do any additional tracking, but it'll just report out to you how you're doing. And for anyone not aware, it's tracking things like cardio exercise, and you try to close that loop by having at least 30 minutes a day of cardio. And then you set your own calorie burn goal for every day how many calories you're going to burn. Can you close that loop every day? And then we know that sitting is not doing us any favors. So if you sit too long, it'll remind you, hey, you haven't gotten up yet this hour, go walk around for a minute. And so that's 12 hours they want you to be out of your chair for at least a minute in the 12 hours. And so those are the loops that it'll track if you are are using that to track your fitness. And this Activity Plus Plus app is just a nice companion to the built-in ones from Apple. That sounds great. I will have to check that out. And what do you have to recommend for us today, Stephanie? Well, um, one thing I have is um, it's a website, well, a blog that Jennifer Gonzalez writes called Cult of Pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, you might have heard of it. I I particularly love her slogan, which is Teacher Nerds Unite. (laughs) Um, And it's it's much more aimed at the K through 12 sector. But I find being in, in higher ed that there are so many points and ideas and even learning activities that she presents that I can easily see how to adapt for my students. And, you know, we all like to play and feel like we're doing something that's fun and, and it's learning and even, you know, some higher level thinking and reflection comes in as that. I see that as a bonus. Um, I'll give you one example is... Uh, 
a glyph and you have young children, so you might know what this is, or if you don't, you will soon because it's big in the elementary school. It's a hieroglyphic, hieroglyphic character or symbol, or really a pictograph. So, so students are given choices um, or questions and then told if this, then this. So for example, if we're, I did one recently on perceptions on leadership. So I said, if you think that someone is born a leader, draw um, a round circle on the page. If you think that people more learn how to be leaders, draw a square hmm. on the page. And then it ends up being a design of some sort. So it might be a pizza or the one I did on leadership was a, um, a actually a person. So it was a self-portrait. So it was, you know, if, mm. if you think you've had more leadership experience than most people your age, give it curly hair. If you think <laughs> you've had less or the same, give it straight hair. And then, you know, if you think, um, you know, leadership is uh, something that extroverts are better at, put glasses on it. If not, if you think introverts, don't put glasses. And so you can, at a glance, you and the students can see that there are overlaps, that there are differences, but that everybody's right. Another thing, and this one actually relates to debriefing that we were just talking about, is the idea of dog fooding, which I'm really fascinated by, just the, the try things yourself before or while you're having your students try them so you know what they're really like. And in the vein of debriefing, what I started doing is I made a little two-thirds of a page handout for myself and right after class or as soon after each class session as I can, I'll fill it out. It's just a template that um, says date and time, location, activities, and then I put in there, I kind of rate the engagement or energy level that I feel like the students had as a whole. And if they asked questions or seemed really confused or really excited about something, I make a note. And that way, when I teach that same session again, I have that as a little, you know, thought piece or cheat sheet for myself. Yeah. So in a way, it's debriefing on my own for future use. It's so funny that you would bring up that dog food because that comes from the world of business to eat your own dog yeah. food. And I both cannot stand that expression, but at the same time, there's nothing that explains it better. Yeah, it's, it's pretty gross. If you think about it. <laughs> but it's so true just to well, and it actually reminds me of the episode with Mike Wesh, where he talked about his cultivating just constantly learning new things and exposing himself to entirely new experiences. He was taking violin lessons yes. from one of his students and yes. learning how to animate. And I've been thinking about that so much because we're asking our students to do that. But so many of us don't. And it's so easy to get stuck in the rut. And then it's also easy yeah. to not have the context of our students and what it is like to struggle and learn and fail and or all the things we're so trying to get our true. students to do. So I love that. I'm gonna have to, I, I actually have her on my podcast app now. And as you said, she writes um, and does podcasts for both K through 12. I mean, yeah. it's focused on that. But as you said, many of the topics cross over and boy, she's a very dynamic host and I'll have to go check she these is. ones out. Just lots of creative ideas. And I think it kind of shakes things up in a, in a higher ed situation to bring in something like we're going to make a diorama or, you know, do a, I did a thing one time when I had them take big poster paper and trace their bodies, you know, kind of like the murder outline that mm -hmm. you see on TV. And, and I've had them write with big colorful markers, what makes 
a good occupational therapist and, and the qualities, just whatever comes to mind and you write those words or you can draw pictures in your outline. And that's kind of their goal that they, many of them told me they taped it on their wall at home. And so that's what they're striving to be. And I found so much rich dialogue and just things that I realized they were thinking about or that they perceived as good clinical skills or research skills related to being an OT practitioner. And um, I thought that was a really neat and, and they were out of their seats. They were in the floor. They were looking at each other's. They were laughing that some of them are not very good artists. and Some of them are great. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. And speaking of that, I have one more recommendation. There's a story that goes with it. And it, it goes back to a recommendation I got from you, which is the app or game of Kahoot. Mm-hmm. And um, my recommendation is they have a new game on that site, um, which is Kahoot It. And the new game is called Jumble. And so it's a sequence, sequencing game. And that, there's a trial that you go through that will show you all the different options you can mm. use. But it's a little bit w- different way you can do that interactive um, play in class. And the story I have that goes with that is it, I started playing that in a lot of my, the classes I teach last spring. And uh, when the students went away for summer break they came back and one of the students ran up to the to me and said guess what and I you know said what and she said well you know Kahoot and I said yeah no <laughs> and she said well I had a family reunion over the break and I, I I got on Kahoot and made like a little trivia game about the history of the family and things that we were going to play and I thought it was so much fun I, I had my boyfriend you know I kind of did a dry run with with um the game on him and she said then I went at the reunion and you know was projecting it on a screen and having everybody play and her boyfriend had um, gotten into the website and changed the very last class question so he popped the question oh my to her goodness. at the very end of the suit and she <laughs> said yes oh my goodness and you thought my job is done <laughs> That's right. So, you know, as she was telling us, you know, we all had tears in our eyes. She's just so excited to be engaged and, you know, got to hand it to the boyfriend. What a creative way to do it. I love it. I hope the people at Kahoot know that. Oh, yeah, I I should have to I should have her send that in. That would be good. Oh, I totally love it. Well, Stephanie it has been so wonderful just having you as a part of the teaching in higher ed community. And for this great contribution today, thank you for all the time you put into preparing and just your work and sharing with us about debriefing. I really appreciate having you on the show today. Thank you so much. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you for all your work. I, I'm constantly learning every every week from your show. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks once again to Stephanie for sharing about how you first got into teaching and about the 3D model of debriefing. For anyone listening, if you would like to grow the teaching in higher ed community even more so we can have even more great guests like Stephanie on, the best way for us to do that together is for you to write a review or leave a rating on whatever service it is that you use to listen to the show. If that's iTunes or Stitcher, that's a great way to just spread the word. That's how we get to use their algorithms to move us up higher in the rankings and the the more people see that this show is available. Would love it if you would do that. And thanks to those of you who have done that recently. And also there's a weekly email that comes out with the show notes and an article about teaching or productivity written by me. And if you want to subscribe to that, it's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.